I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to one of the 10 best English-language Fiorentina podcasts on the internet. Welcome to Viola Station. Hello again after three weeks since our last recording, spending a few weeks at the Mike Golick Summer Camp for Podcasting. We were asked to leave for only wearing purple. So now we're back to return to our audience. Tito, how does it feel being able to sleep in something other than a sleeping bag now? Well, Mike, I can't say that anything has changed down here in the bunker. It is still sleeping bags the whole way. But I've heard there could be a cot in my future. I'm very excited for it. How are you doing? I got back to the Tempur-Pedic, which makes my life so much better. Mike, what are you drinking today? Right now... Because it's so damn hot where I'm at, right? You know, in 90 degrees weather, you need something a little bit cooler. So I've been going very simple, Long Island iced teas. Uh, But I will say on Friday, I did get to celebrate uh, with some family and had a bottle of 2016 Tignanello, which is as good as it's advertised and can't wait to have another. What are you drinking, buddy? In honor of a certain poll in the Fiorentina side, I am working on a Zivietz, which is Poland's top-selling beer, and I can see why. It's actually pretty dang good. I think it's worth mentioning, though, before we continue, that both you and I had a birthday recently, and I think it would be just bad form for us not to celebrate Tito's birthday without a toast. So, to you, buddy. Thanks for everything. Mike, looking back at you, couldn't do it without you. Many thanks. Hey, cheers. Cheers through the screen. Having gotten through the preliminaries here, let's go ahead and get down to brass tacks. And that means we have to look back at the 2019-2020 season, which was, without a doubt, the strangest one I can remember and the strangest one anyone can remember. Mike, what just happened? It really was quite an interesting season, especially, you know, even if it wasn't for COVID, just how we kicked off within a two to three week period, we went from the Della Valley to Rocco Camiso. And that was as much as anybody could have ever hoped for. We got it. You know, you had a lot of the ultras, a lot of the fans sitting outside of the Della Valley, forcing them to to put the team up for sale and probably accept less than what they originally wanted, which gave an opportunity for Rocco to come in within a couple of weeks, purchase the club, have some extra money for players, for Centro Sportivo, for stadium, everything that he brought the club over, had a great experience here in the United States, played three games. Tito, you and I have talked about our experience there. 
you know, just, just good as anything that you could potentially ever have for North American Fiorentina fans. You know, we had the opportunity to go one of those three cities to watch the club, celebrate with other fans, tailgate just the way that Americans do here. And it was a great overall experience. Rocco put out, you know, the red tape. Uh, it, it was it was phenomenal. So, you know, I think from from what actually transpired, we have to first and foremost talk about Rocco Camiso taking over the club and, and really the whirlwind fashion that he was able to do that. From that topic, what are your thoughts? How do you look at the first couple weeks of uh, Fiorentina under Rocco Camiso? He said and did all the right things, didn't he? Seeing him and Vinny in Times Square is still one of the most surreal things I can imagine. Fiorentina in the middle of New York is just weird. That has not fully sunk in, even now that we're more than 12 months beyond it. But, you know, it seems like, aside from the focus on a new stadium, which is good and correct, I agree with Rocco completely on that, it does seem like a lot of things have stayed the same in terms of day-to-day operations. Does that seem fair to you, Mike? I know you're a little bit closer to this than I am. Yeah, I think it's a loaded question. I'll go back to just what you were talking about, seeing Montella and Camiso in Times Square. But you also saw the power of Rocco Camiso because he actually got Fiorentina onto the the stock exchange floor, interviewed by MSNBC and, and, and you name it. Fiorentina had a presence while they were here inside of the United States. There was so much press, so much notoriety. You saw the power that is one of the top 400 richest men in the world. Rocco Camiso went from a very wealthy, powerful, yet unknown person inside of the United States to the enigmatic character that now we know him to be and and really push that might, push that power. And I think that... That's the difference. If the the country of Italy, if the people of Tuscany and Florence would allow Rocco to be Rocco, we would see what I saw at the Mediacom headquarters. We would see what you just talked about uh, when Fiorentina came to the United States for the first time in decades. I think that you would see a trajectory of people saying Fiorentina is, is only going upwards. So it, it is a loaded question, at least in, in my opinion. Has, has much changed? Not yet. Is the framework there for change? Potentially. It all depends on what's going to happen over in Florence, Marinardella, Tuscany, when, when we talk about Piscina and other people, and the country of, of Italy, allowing for somebody to come in and build infrastructure to build cost centers, revenue generating centers, to be able to compete on a world stage. Because that's what we're talking about. We're not just talking about being able to compete in Serie A. We're talking about being able to compete on the world stage where we see the Man Cities, the Man U's, the Chelsea's, the Bayern's, the, the, the Barcelona's, the Real's. All of these clubs are able to now do. And even if you can take it into some of these smaller markets, what's a Lyon being able to compete against Juve? in the Champions League. Let's take a moment for Schadenfreude here, please. Just everyone. Cheers. Everyone, we're just going to we're just going to leave a little bit of dead air so we can all laugh about this. Okay, and we're back on. That was a good one to drink on. Oh, uh, so 
<laughs> you know, I, I, I do have a hard time saying that we're, we're not better than the Della Valley because under the Della Valley, we, we have to remember what we sold, we could spend. We're no longer in that same process. We have just spent 70 to $80 million in a transfer window in January. That's insane. When was the last time we spent 70 $80 million in, inside of a transfer window in the summer? And, and thankfully, because a lot of those are being forgiven from a financial fair play standpoint, we can reevaluate what we're going to spend this summer. So I, I do believe we're in a better spot. Rocco just announced two or three days ago that Mediacom, again, met for, I think, 56 quarters in a row that they've exceeded revenue quarter after quarter. And he's actually already repaid the entire loan for purchasing Fiorentina. That debt of, let's call it $180 million, is gone. The debt of, you know, $70 million for the players is gone. So that's the power of Rocco Camiso. I think we need to be able to separate those two things as far as looking at the season. What does Rocco Camiso have at his disposal? It's much more than uh, AS Roma has right now under new uh, ownership. Because Rocco has this money-generating, profit-generating machine under Mediacom and the ability to spend a lot of money inside of that structure, of which, again, Mediacom is the parent company. Fiorentina sits underneath that umbrella. That's how it works. But does the country, does the, the area of Tuscany and the city of Florence allow for that? I'm not sure. So I, I apologize if that's a long-winded answer to your question. I don't, I don't want to agree with the statement that are we, are we not better off? I think we're much better off. We have a much more gregarious owner and group of people. We have people who are, are bought into the fans who have taken the city by storm. And if only we can give them the support they need, we're going to have bliss. I think that's a great way to look at that. I would also add, especially recently, I think a lot of people have gone off of Rocco a little bit. The struggles getting the stadium done, some of the transfer rumors, which let's also add, they are all rumors. No one has been sold yet. So let's all maybe relax for a sec. If you were expecting huge changes this year, look at the year we just had between the coronavirus shutting everything down and changing the entire landscape and probably the short to midterm plans for the club, I don't think it's fair to judge Rocco's first year at the helm the way you normally would judge an owner's first year. I think the other thing that's probably worth pointing out is that Rocco seems to me, and again, Mike, I'll defer to your judgment on this, And you are more than welcome to tell me that I'm wrong if I am, or even if I'm not. I think that Rocco is very focused on the financial side and the infrastructure side for the team and is more interested in leaving the player acquisition and the day-to-day operations to someone he trusts further down the org chart, which is absolutely the way you want your owner to be. You don't want Zamparini stomping through the office and firing someone every day. I agree with you. I think that Rocco's done a good job in the early going. Things are just so crazy with the virus and the uncertainty that it's generated that I don't think we can judge Rocco the way we would normally judge someone through this period. 
I think you bring up a couple really, really good points because there are layers to Fiorentina and that's by design. It's unique. And even when we had Rocco on our podcast, you talked to him and asked him the question about, you know, we have two people, not just one, Joe Barone and Daniel Prade. Both of them serve a purpose. And I think if Rocco had his way, there was not a pandemic. COVID did not come in here. Rocco would be living probably 80% of his time inside the city of Florence. He was recently interviewed and, and talked about spending 95% of his day on Fiorentina when he goes into Mediacom's headquarters. Keep in mind, the succession planning at Mediacom is already there. Mediacom is a company that's ready to work. You know, Rocco's fingerprint, his design is on that company everywhere you look, but he's been able to hire, to be able to train, to promote, and, and put people in charge, delegate a lot of those responsibilities at this point. So that way, those people now coming up are, are being able to continue to fine tune that machine and you know mine the money out of it. I think that's what we're trying to see over inside of in Fiorentina. What does that relationship look like with Joe Barone, Daniele Prade? The first one has to be Daniele Prade because we just talked about how much money we spent. Was that money spent wisely? In certain areas, absolutely. When you, when you take a look at a guy like Amrabat coming over for about $20 million, that's a great purchase, absolutely phenomenal purchase. And, and knowing that that was Rocco's guy, and Rocco is pretty public about that, that needed to get done. There was a lot of competition with Napoli there, and uh, Fiorentina won. We don't normally win those battles, and thankfully we did, because is there a player that we've been more excited about coming in than, than Amrabat? Recently, I don't think so. So at the same time, spending $11 million for Aguadello, I thought Aguadella looked very good coming in when he had opportunities, but did he look like he was worth $11 million? I'm not exactly sure. So I think the first thing that we need to take a look at is Rocco's putting up the money. He has faith in those people that he hires. He's very loyal to them, and he expects loyalty back. Are, are they going to be the ones that can help him succeed, knowing that he doesn't have revenue coming in from a stadium? So you're limited in what you can invest in. That's the first and foremost. Second one is, you know, Joe Baroni. Joe Baroni is the CEO of Fiorentina. Joe is Rocco's right-hand guy. He's going to get done what, what Rocco needs to get done. You know, he took care of Coppa. He took care of the Centro Sportivo. He's, you know, negotiating the stadium. I think that it would definitely help Joe's position if Rocco was inside of Florence and being able to help with these negotiations. No doubt about it. You make a, a lot of really good points. I think that there's still a lot that needs to be decided upon. The first one is going to be able to be judged pretty quickly, which is Prade. I think that over this next year, we're going to get a very good look at who is going to be sticking around that organization and who is going to be replaced. And I think that is really one of the most interesting things. But I also think given the chaos this year, Rocco took over fairly close to the start of the season. So there wasn't yep. even a full summer for the natural chaos of that deal meant that the club's resources were directed elsewhere. Yep. Especially when you look at the Delavales allegedly trying to cash in on a bunch of the top players through Folly Ramadani. It's believable. Oh boy, isn't it? That said, but given all the chaos, I don't think you can 
really evaluate the organizational work over the past year just because it has been such an outlier year. I think that next year that you'll have a rather, I think that Rocco will have enough to really make those calls in a way that he doesn't right now. And I'm fascinated to see how that shakes out, but I don't think we can really say a whole lot else with any certainty until then. Does that strike you as reasonable? Absolutely. It does. And I'll give you one point to illustrate your point. We hear a lot of people who talk about Luis Muriel not being a Fiorentina. That had nothing to do with Rocco Camiso. He came in and within, I think three days would have had to execute that purchase he wasn't able to evaluate personnel. I don't even think he had Prade in position at that point yet. So it, it took some time. A lot of people gave him slack as you're watching Atalanta and you're seeing Muriel's just score beautiful goal after beautiful goal. Timing-wise, it could not have been the worst timing from a Fiorentina perspective because Rocco did purchase the club very quickly, but we were still halfway into the market at that point. What Rocco did do to balance that out is he was able to move and get Fiorentina an invitation to the United States for three games on primetime TV to help with the ratings of, of the club. So I, I think that what he did was, was very Rocco-esque and, and that's where we need to be able to leverage him. But you, you still need situations where in inside of Italy, he doesn't have, those opportunities yet and I don't know if they're just not there for any club that isn't Juve or isn't one of the top clubs um, because he has just as much money as anybody else does out there he just needs a little bit more access. Pending what happens this summer and over the next 12 months we're going to get answers about that but what we do have answers about right now is this past season. The way that Mike and I are looking at this is that you can break this season down into three parts pretty easily. The first part for Fiorentina is when Vincenzo Montella was in charge of the squad and then got sacked in December. And then Giuseppe Iacchini took over. A couple months later, the coronavirus-enforced stop in league play began. And then there was the restart, which is the third period. So I would say those are really the three main sections of the season, I would vote, Mike, that we talk a little bit about each one of those. Let's so, do it. What really stood out to you about Fiorentina under Vincenzo Montella? You, you mentioned it earlier as far as Montella being here in, in New York City with Rocco Camiso. I thought that that was the most awkward situation that I've personally seen. And I saw Montella, who was also with Rocco in the Bronx uh, at Arthur Avenue, Rocco's home uh, where he grew up. Uh, it was just so very awkward. I think that it was hard for Montella. Montella dealt with a lot of stuff at the previous year with the Della Valley. And as the Della Valley were being pushed out, the fans were revolting. I think that he probably got a lot of that as well. Somehow, Rocco was convinced that Montella was the guy, though. And I don't think that Montella convinced him of that. I think somebody else did. That, that That's no inside information, just just a hunch. I don't think that Montella wanted to be here. Even though he was coaching, I think that he was coaching for a check. I don't think he was actually coaching because it was a passion and he wanted to stay inside of the, the city of Florence. So the first thing that I observed was I don't think he wanted to be here. I think you're dead on. And I think the players picked up on that too. 
because it seemed like they were playing without any real passion, any real interest in the results. I mean, there were a couple of really, really good games that they played. The scoreless draw against Juventus really jumps out at me, for example. They didn't seem real clear on what their instructions were at any given moment. Your coach really has to be your leader. Like The the whole team has to be behind him if you're going to succeed. Pretty much always been the way it works, and I don't think that was the case with Montella. And I think you could really tell by the way the players expressed themselves on the field. Going back to that Juventus game, I would actually argue that the best person in the stadium wasn't even the players, wasn't the coach. I think that that game was won by the atmosphere the fans created coming into the stadium. I still believe that he didn't want to coach. I I think that he was mentally beyond Fiorentina because of the season before with the Della Valle and what the Della Valle, and and it didn't have to do with him. I I still believe Montella is a good guy. He's, He's a good coach. I think that the fans treated the Della Valle the way that they needed to to get them out, and, and Montella was was just collateral damage. Juve game, fans won that game. They they urged the, the, the players to play their best game, and that's what happened. I will say this. Having been at two games that Montella coached, having been in his interview room, I will say that he is a very professional interviewer. He can talk his way out of anything. I had a very high respect for his professionalism, despite my belief that he didn't want to coach, despite the fact that he didn't win either of those games. And both of the times that I was there interviewing him, it was one of those feelings like you're coaching for your job. So uh, I I do have a deep respect for, for his professionalism from that standpoint, but I do hope that Daniele Prade learned a lot from this experience because I, I think that this was really one of those things where Prade bought into Montella and and probably kept him a little bit longer than he should. So hopefully Prade learned a few things is, is you know, the next thing I'll, I'll say. You know, it's funny. My second point dovetails with that pretty nicely because the first time we saw a Montella-Prade pairing in Florence, it was really good. And I think the reason for that was that the team had a really strong identity. Everyone knew what happened when Fiorentina showed up. They were going to pass around the middle better than any team in Italy. They were going to keep the ball. They were going to play vertical passes when the opportunity arose. But otherwise, they were just going to recycle possession, recycle possession, run you ragged as you chased them, get in the goals, maybe through Giuseppe Rossi, maybe through Stefan Jovetic, maybe through... Gonzalo Rodriguez, I mean, just through anyone. I was thinking him. But the second stretch under Montella, going back to the way the players looked on the field, to me, they seemed like they didn't really know what they were supposed to be doing. There was no real effort to keep the ball. Fiorentina had less possession than their opponents in something like two-thirds of the games that Montella coached, but there also wasn't any real coherent counterattacking structure. There was no we're going to sit deep and then break quickly. There was no, we're going to play a high line and press the opponents high. It was just sort of 11 guys wandering around, looking at each other going, I don't know. Should I be over here? Should I be walking that way? And it it showed there was just no identity for the team. I think that was Montella's second greatest sin as a coach was he, he never told the players what he wanted from them. I think that Montella 
didn't want to be here. But to be fair to Montella, he did not have a team that was set up for his his likeness. There was no Valero, no Aquilani, no Peck. It didn't happen here. So in, in my estimation, we should have probably spent some more time on the midfield building that out last summer, which goes back to Prod A. So, you know, the whole Prod A thing, there's pluses and minuses. When you're looking at setting up a club for Montella's system, you need to have you need to have character inside of that midfield, and we didn't have it. Although I will add to that, one thing that Montella did do was unleash Gaetano Castrovilli. Mm. For that first two-thirds of the season, he looked like he might be the best midfielder in Italy. I cannot believe how good he was still. I mean, after we highlighted him as one of our top youth prospects for two years in a row, told everyone, hey, this, this kid could be pretty good, guys. We think he could wind up being a very competent Serie A midfielder. Personally, I feel very vindicated that he blew up the way that he did. But I will say, Montella gave him a lot of freedom to express himself, to dribble, to combine in that inside left channel with Ribery and with Dalbert overlapping. That little troika was a lot of fun. To me, that might be what stood out most about the Montella tenure was Gaetano Castrovilli suddenly looked like the second coming of Giancarlo Antonioni. So we know two people predicted this, at least two people, you and Giancarlo Antonioni. So right now, you and Antonioni, you guys are right there together. How about that? I'm pretty sure that if I were right there with Antonioni on anything, he would call security. (laughs) Rightly so, because I would be trying to steal his shoelaces to put in my shrine or something. Antonioni seems like the type of guy that if you're buying him a drink, he's going to drink it with you. So my advice, order some good good drinks there. (laughs) (laughs) Those are the, the real takeaways from that first third to half of the season. After Montella got sacked, Giuseppe Iacchini came in. So what stood out to you, Mike? What was, the, what was the number one thing about Fiorentina in that second period from Iacchini's hiring to when the lockdown started? So the first thing that stood out to me was, I, I guess, the difference of Rocco coming in saying, we're going to compete for Europe. And then the fan reaction of hiring Beppe Iacchini. And we know that the coach is being signed off on by Rocco, but it's not being decided by Rocco. I, I, I thought it was a very interesting hire for multiple reasons. He was not the ultimate namesake that was out there. He was not the person that the fans wanted. But you have to respect the fact that Fiorentina and Rocco Camiso were willing to sign off on somebody that the fans weren't behind just because that they knew that there was an outcome that they were shooting for, that this person fit the needs. So he was not a game-changing personality, not a game-changing mind, but he really did end up fitting the purpose. So despite not being the wish from a fan standpoint, he ended up being just what Fiorentina needed. And I thought that that narrative was, was something that had ebbs and flows, you know, peaks and valleys throughout his tenure. And it definitely started when he came in. 
you saw a lot of the training that he did. I thought it was interesting that Fiorentina opened up a lot of the training ground practices to the public. Media was invited a little bit more. So I think that, the, you know, systematically, philosophically, a lot of things changed and uh, became more of a family atmosphere uh, under Iacchini. That is a really good point was just the relationship with the fans to the team. Montella, always a little bit distant. Yakini, not exactly a warm and fuzzy kind of fella, but he definitely, as a former viola player, I think, understands the city a lot better. And I really do feel like he, he did make an effort to reach the fans in a way that Montella didn't. I think the other thing that he did that was really important, and here is my observation point one, got the team back to the basics. I know it sounds really cheesy and boring, and it kind of is, but sometimes you got to remind even these professional players that, okay, when the opponent has the ball in this situation, you go here, you go here, you go here, here's how we move as a team, and redevelop that identity again, and he did, which he did fantastically. Let's not forget that after he took over... Fiorentina had the best defensive record in the league. They conceded fewer goals after Yakini took the reins than any club in the top flight in Italy, which is wild. And I don't think we're giving him enough credit for that, both for his work on the training ground and also for giving these players confidence and providing them with that sense of, of togetherness of how they were going to play as a team that Montella didn't. And I think that getting back to the basics, saying, all right, we do X, Y, and Z, and that's it. I think that was so important for this club. I think you bring up a couple good points. So let's start with the fundamentals. I think it's great that we have the Larry Bird of soccer, you know, leading with the fundamentals, uh, just wearing a hat. And, and speaking of with this hat, my one gripe, which is more, I guess, from a commentator standpoint, I'd love for Fiorentina to just put it out there. Do a story on way, why Beppe wears the hat so everybody is aware of it. How many times were we shouting out on Twitter, on social media, whatever it was, as a commentator was talking about how silly it is that a coach is wearing a hat inside of a, a soccer game? There's a medical reason. So, you know, nobody wants to hear it again. Just tell everybody, do a story. Let's just get that over with. The second thing, and I'm going to ask a question back to you, I, I think that it's great. I, I'm, I'm, I grew up uh, a football, American football player, and uh, I was always a defensive person. I was a linebacker growing up. And one of the biggest reasons I stopped watching American football, particularly the NFL, is because it became the opposite of what I enjoyed. It became an offensive league. You can't touch the quarterback. You can't hit anybody. You know, defensive football went out the door. Uh, and, and it just irked me to no extent. So. I respect all that we're talking about from a defensive standpoint because I, I think that that's where discipline and, and a lot of technique comes in, and that's Italian football too when you're talking about it. But is that Florentine football, do Fiorentina fans respect and want a good defensive team, or do you think that Fiorentina fans want what they've always wanted, and that's a whole bunch of goals and flashy football? There's a reason that all of Fiorentina's best players have been number 10s and strikers. There aren't a whole lot of great 
historical defenders. I mean, you can talk Passarella and you can probably talk Gonzalo, although I don't think he's quite at that level, frankly. But I mean, going all the way back to the days of Kurt Hamrin and El Artillero Pedrone and all of those guys, it's always been an attacking team. That's what the city's used to. You're completely right. So by the time that fans are allowed back in, so let's just say the second half of the season, January, Pepe is having a very good year. Very good year. He has the best defensive squad that's out there, but isn't... And, and staying with what we've seen already is not scoring that many goals. Fans come back into the stadium. Is that something that they're going to be eager to cheer? Are they going to support a winner or are they going to want a winner that scores a lot of goals? Again, that's something we're really only going to get to find out next year if it happens. I mean, every yeah. time that Fiorentina has tried to play a very defensive style, in my memory, I can go back to Shanisha Mihailovic. I can go think of Delio Rossi. I can think of Stefano Pioli. Every time they hire a very defensively oriented coach, things tend to go a bit pear-shaped. I don't know if that's causation. I don't know if that's correlation. But it does seem like some positivity is what you need to make it in Florence. And, and I think that that's an interesting then opportunity to transition into post-pandemic because we did see, and in my opinion, what needs to happen is Beppe Iacchini needs to be willing to come outside of his shell a little bit. He needs to go away from the, the coach who did not have top talent and was coaching just not to get relegated to having a plethora of offensive-minded players, maybe not the top scorers because we still need those, but can he be somebody who changes some tactics a little bit? And I think we saw a little bit of that going into the post-pandemic side. So post-pandemic, I was very interested in seeing Beppe Iacchini and his tactics, how they changed. And he tried a couple different things. Some didn't work all the time, but he was willing to get outside of his shell and, and try – to change formations, to change players, to bench players, quite a few things. What are your thoughts? So the first thing that jumped out to me after the restart was that Fiorentina came out really flat, obviously, and just looked terrible, which isn't too surprising. They had a number of players test positive for the virus, which can't make things easy to go out and play a game, even if you're getting paid for it. And also with such a young team, I mean, these guys had just had no frame of reference for how to handle this. None of us did. But when you're 22 years old, it's got to be a lot harder to figure that out. So it, it, boy, things were a little bit grim coming out. But then Yakini did something that really impressed me after a little bit, just started benching people. Chiesa was playing terribly, went to the bench. Castrovilli, a couple of bad games, to the bench. I thought that was a real show of character and I thought the team responded to it tremendously. Look at the results after he reincorporated some of his starters back into the lineup. Federico Chiesa played out of his mind. He, he was fantastic. And I think that's the kind of character that Yakini brings is that he makes players earn their spot. And I'm sure that's not easy to do especially when you've only been the coach there for a little while. And when you have an Italy international like Fede, who's underperforming and saying, nope, 
you're on the bench. You're not playing this game. When you come back, you're not a forward anymore. You're a wingback. That took that took some courage from Yakini, and I think that we are not giving him enough credit as a fan base. So I would really like to highlight that. That's a double-edged sword because it's not just Yakini who's who's coaching for his job and having his best player go to the bench. He's seeing performance after performance of Federico Chiesa having bad, bad performances, which is impacting his financial opportunity later. So you know that Rocco Camiso is not enjoying seeing Federico Chiesa having bad performance after bad performance and then go to the bench because he's expecting 70 million euros and he's playing like a guy who's probably worth 30 million over a couple uh, game stretch. But it worked. You have to give praise where it's due. And, and Pepe deserves the praise for being able to bench a couple of players, get the most out of them as they came back. And, and Chiesa, when he came back, looked like a 100 million euro player. So there's no doubt about that. One thing that I will ask is we saw a couple of players go to the bench. And I know you and I have talked about this a couple of times. One player who did not go to the bench and, and in my opinion, almost seemed to be overly used was Franck Ribéry. So what are your thoughts there? I want to start this off by saying that I think that Franck Ribéry is a forty class. So he's he's just a phenomenal player when he's between the lines. I mean, he does things that other people can't. Even at thirty-seven years old, slowing down, fantastic on the ball, and he runs the attack so well. The problem is that the way that he plays now is he wants to. He does want to slow things down. He wants to get on the ball. He wants to pick out that pass. He wants to be able to survey the whole field in front of him and work from that inside left position. He needs everyone else running off of him. And while that can work, it does limit everyone else so much. I don't think it's a coincidence entirely that those last two games of the season when he was on the bench, Fiorentina suddenly busted out for seven goals. Again, I think that Ribery is just miles beyond almost anyone on the planet as a player. I will go on the record right now and say that he has been so much better than I predicted or thought he would be. I'll eat my words. I was totally wrong about him when he arrived. He's just tremendous. Patrick Swayze and Ghost Ditto. (laughs) (laughs) That was really funny. But I think that having a team that plays with a whole team-wide identity that doesn't rely on one person so much does bring the best out of everyone else. Especially because Yakini is not the kind of coach who wants his players taking lots of time on the ball. Seems like he wants them taking three touches and then release the ball, shoot, pass, go forward. And Ribery doesn't fit that template. Maybe he still could, but I don't think he's that player anymore. He's not the guy he was five years ago for Bayern. Figuring out how to incorporate his abilities is something that's going to be really tough for the upcoming year. I don't think that anyone figured it out this past year, either Montella or Yakini. But I also think that, holy smokes, Frank Ribery can still ball. He had personal moments of brilliance that nobody can explain. It, it just that you appreciate all of those opportunities. I will go back to a different 
scenario where you see Franck Ribéry, who is far beyond the ability of everybody on the club, let's just be honest, and, and mentally he's processing the game just the way that he physically played, you know, five to ten years ago. How many times did you look back and see Franck, who made a move, who made a pass, and then after nobody else is thinking that quickly or reacting that quickly, he then starts coaching in mid-game as far as what's going on. How many times did he yell at Zotil or Chiesa or Castrovilli and just start pointing it out and get on them? I loved, absolutely loved seeing that because in my opinion, even though he wasn't there, who was the first person that they went to go and celebrate with as he was in the stand and, and as well, he was in the stands at that point. So I'm kind of leading you to the, to the answer. It, it was, it was Frank Grippery. You know, they, they all went and, and celebrated with Frank. They, they love the guy and, and how can he not? I mean, he's a legend. He's teaching them so much and there is just so much that he can teach. So I, I think it's a great opportunity for all of those young players to be able to learn. I, I don't disagree. I, I think that th- there's two scenarios. I think that we kind of play too much to Franck Ribéry's skill at times. And at the same time, I think we play too much to Federico Chiesa. And the, the first Beppe Iacchini was doing that. The second Beppe Iacchini for the last few games that got us out of relegation and got us into the top half of the table said, no, 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 no. Listen, we're a team. We're going to play a team game. We're going to leverage the strengths, but we're not just going to play out to one person or another. Like, Chiesa, you need to follow the game plan here, and this is where we're going to need you. Guy ends on a hat trick. Ribéry was able to see so much success in the second, well, not second half, but after the uh, the restart. So I, I think that going back to what I started this conversation with on Beppe, Beppe needs to develop some some balls. He needs to, and to come out of his own shadow of being the relegation master. I think that he needs to start being attack-minded. He needs to start coaching a lot of these personalities that are far beyond anybody who's ever coached before and being able to dictate the way that they now play and listen so this way they can go and execute on the pitch, not just for him, but really it's for Rocco Camiso because he's the voice of Rocco on the pitch. And who's the first person getting a call from Rocco? It's Beppe. Whether it goes good or wrong, Beppe's getting that call from Rocco and, and, and having to deal with it. I, I think that we're in a better place just because we saw. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Beppe willing to take the leaps that we didn't see him willing to take when he first came in. And I hope that that continues. And I also hope that what I hear is correct. He speaks English and he's willing to do a podcast with us. Well, hey, maybe on this next segment, we'll get him on. <laughs> but probably not. All right. Well, for the next segment, we're going to go into the superlatives of the year. And Mike and I are each going to break down who we think was the most or least something. So I think we have to start with the best player of the year. 
For me, it's Nikola Milankovic. I think that nobody else reached his levels of performance. He was frequently the best player on the pitch. He made very few mistakes. He scored a bunch of goals and was superb throughout the entire campaign. And I don't think anyone else matched that. Mike, how about you? So I'm going to hedge. You know, I'm going to do that that easy thing that a lot of other people do. So a lot of better people have done this before me. So it's, it's all good. I'm going to hedge. Uh, I'm going to go with Milenkovic because that was the first person that came to mind. I think that everything that you said is is spot on. Milenkovic was a stud. Uh, he was almost Gonzalo-esque in his ability to head the ball in on, on the set plays, which is what we needed. How many times did, did he actually create momentum coming off of set plays and, and scoring some goals? So Milenkovic, but the co-best player in my mind, and equally as important is the Polish goalkeeper. Raise it up. I see you. Dragowski. I do find the last, what was it, four, maybe five games, a little bit awkward. I hope that there was just an injury. I hope that what we're hearing now isn't part of that, you know, potentially selling him. And and, and I just hope that there was not anything from a personal standpoint, from, from a professional standpoint of, of trying to get out. Bart has not shown us any of that. In my opinion, Bart has been one of the top goalkeepers, even before Fiorentina's defense was even really good. He was one of the best goalkeepers in stopping that amazing shot all season. What he has done has kept this club in many games and allowed us to win a few more. Um, But I, I do believe keeping Dragowski inside the city of Florence is the most important thing moving forward. But that's not saying we shouldn't keep Milankovic because I, I think that we, we need to keep both of these two guys. Fully agreed. I think that Bart, for me, there's still a couple of areas he can improve in. I'd like to see him get better at tracking shots from distance, which I think he struggled with a little bit this year. But you're right. He did make some saves that just defy description. He has a better beard than I do, so I need to, I need to uh, aspire towards his beard. Mine's all out of control. I need to you, trim it. You gotta get some, yeah, you got to get some Rogaine on that thing if you're going to yeah, catch up. That and it's all gray. I mean, he's so much younger than I am. So, Yeah, that one, I don't know if you can catch up. So next category, while we were talking about this one beforehand, you made a really good point here, is that the best player is not always the most valuable player. So to me, Even though he wasn't game in, game out, the top performer, I think that Federico Chiesa is still the most valuable player on the team. When he plays well, the team wins. When he's off his game, the team loses. To me, that means that he is the most valuable player because his performance most impacts the rest of the team. I agree 100%. I think this goes back to, unfortunately, what we may have to take a look at from a Federico Chiesa standpoint. Let me first say this because, you know, you've already had to eat some of your words. I'll have to eat some of my words. I did publicly on, on the site already do this. Federico Chiesa came back and showed us the winner that he is and the fact that he deserves all the love, the praise, despite my willingness to to say he can leave if we can get the right money before. <laughs> so... And now here we are inside of the market. Unfortunately, I think, though, that his performances went from, as we said, that 30 million 
euro player to that 70, 80, 100 million euro player. And the games that he was that 70, 80, 100 million euro player, this club was unstoppable. Like we can be just a, a, a very wonderful club. He was a transient player. It, it was amazing the way that he performed. But at the same time, he's still young. I don't know if it was just that he wasn't up to the competition that day. Mentally, he wasn't bought into the game. He was reading some of the news that was out there, talking to his dad about contracts and clubs. He's dealing with a lot of no doubt about it. He also had performances that were at 30 million euros. And, and again, I'm using these numbers because I think he's probably going to leave. And unfortunately, that's the case. But the most valuable player on this club, when he performed at his best, this club was the best that it can be. When he performed not at his best, we had a player out there that just maybe we needed somebody else. I don't know. I don't know how to say it any better. So from, from my standpoint, Kies is the most valuable player on this club even though he wasn't always the best player on the pitch. There were times that there was nobody who can touch his performances and we can relish in, in all of those performances he had, but hopefully we'll be able to see him at the club a little bit longer. Hopefully he'll extend his contract. I will also say this again. I think if Camisa was able to be in the city of Florence and that relationship was fostered, developed, there was a trust not only between the two of them, but also in the project that they're building out. I think that this would actually be done by now, but there is that that disruption as a result of COVID. So I don't know if Chiesa stays, and I think that that's going to be a shame because he's going to go somewhere where he may not be able to develop at the rate that he is inside of the club of Fiorentina, whether that's Juventus, Man United, whether that's Inter Milan, AC Milan. I know there's a lot of speculation, but I, I do believe he was our most valuable player. Next category, new arrival. I think this one's even easier because it has to be Frank Ribery, doesn't it? I mean, he's just he's just levels above everyone else who showed up. Nothing against new signings like Eric Pulgar or Martin Caceres or Dalbert, Patrick Cutrone, Chris Guame. And Duncan. Now, yeah, I, sure. you and I, as we were preparing for this, it it's amazing how little we talk about Frank Ribery just because his he's the consummate professional he brings so much to the club and I think we just expect that I also think probably part of it is that we don't expect him to be here past next year maybe he will in a different capacity because it seems like he's enjoying some time with the club outside of being robbed you know we, we definitely should be spending some more time on what Frank has meant to the club not only on the performance side but the fact that he's out there recruiting some of these other players to come on a Bozeman, like some important stuff. People people want to come here just to have uh, another opportunity or the first opportunity to play with Frank Ribery uh, on the pitch. And who wouldn't? He's just so, so good. But he is also, as we have mentioned, kind of old relative to a professional athlete, not to the earth. So let's talk about young players. Who for you, Mike, was the best U23 player on the year? We've talked about a couple of them already, so it has to be Milinkovic. It has to be Chiesa, you know, best Milinkovic, most valuable Chiesa for the reasons that we've already talked about. I think that there's a lot of talent on this team. You've, you've seen a couple coaches who've already come out and talked about just 
the plethora of young talent that exists at this club. So to be the best of all of that that exists here has to speak volumes. I just hope that we can continue to retain this talent and, you know, the Rocco project will be able to re-sign them because both of these guys, whether it's Milenkovic or Chiesa, are at a crossroads. You know, do you, do you leave? Do you stay? And I think that they're two similar but different experiences. You know, Milenkovic, his agent, pushing him along to make more money. Chiesa has an agent but being kind of managed by his father. For whatever reason, I, I think Enrico wants him to, to leave. I, I wish both of them would stay. So, so those are mine. How about you? I am with you all the way. I think it's Milenkovic, number one. I mean, if you're the player of the year, you kind of have to be the young player of the year, too. And I thought Vic Chiesa, for all of his ups and downs, was probably the second. If I were to have a third place on the podium, I'd give it to Gaetano Castrovilli, who, even though he closed the season on a fairly sour note, was just effervescent. I think that the restart really took it out of him, and he never recovered. I'm not going to hold that against him because that was just such a weird situation. But hey, at least he's got a little bit of runner-up recognition on this podcast, and I'm sure it means very much to him. (laughs) Well, listen, I actually think his ceiling's the highest of them all. It really might be. He's got so many talents. Even, Even towards the end of the season when his attacking output trickled off to pretty much nothing. His defensive contribution, his work rate, his ball winning, really outstanding. If we can teach him how to not kick people in the legs right outside of the box (laughs) or inside of the box, that'd be fine. But, you know, even with that, I think he's still a plus. Yeah, he's grown. Uh, Next category we have to talk about is the goal of the year. And, Mike, I have a feeling (laughs) I know which one you're going to pick. So why don't you start us off here? It has to be. For many, many reasons. Uh, Vlahovic is obviously my guy. I was at the game. Maurizio Gamarucci watched it together. We, we celebrated and screamed as loud as, as anybody could possibly scream in a high-pitched voice uh, as, as this goal went in. Vlahovic, the 1-1 draw against Inter Milan, saw at the Temio Franchi. Simple. Most amazing sports experience I've ever had. Soccer, football, basketball, baseball, doesn't matter. That's it. Goes to the top for me. That was a heck of a goal. I still haven't figured out which one of these I think is mine. Ribery's solo goal against Lazio after the restart where he beat about five defenders and sat the goalkeeper down was incredible. Agreed. Uh, That one he scored at Milan in the 1-3 where he deked Romagnoli and another defender and Donnarumma, and sent all three of them the wrong way before slotting home was just hilarious to me. I think that the one that Chiesa scored at Sampdoria in the 5-1 was superb, shows what he can do for just pure impact. I thought Lirola's late winner in the Copa against Atalanta was fantastic after that ridiculous pass from Eric Pulgar. But if you're going to make me pick one, it's coming from... Not the likeliest source. It's Marco Benazzi's... What's that? Okay. I thought you were going somewhere else, but go ahead. No, no, no. I'm going Marco Benazzi's volley from the parking lot against Bologna. After a free kick, ball bounced back out to him, and he hit it fully on the volley, 
ripped it so, so sweetly into the side netting, inside the post. You're not going to see a better hit all year anywhere. Just the loop on it. I Oh, man. That kind of goal, I cannot get enough out of. And it was the perfect Marco goal because he scored a banger and did nothing else for the rest of the game. And also, we're after. yep. And you got to love a guy who knows who he is and sticks to it. So for me, Marco Benassi, goal of the season at home against Bologna. Uh, next up, you want to go best team performance? Yeah, best team performance. I, I find it hard to go anywhere outside of the Milan 3-1 game just because that was utter and absolute dominance. And I don't think anybody was expecting it either. You know, it was one of those where all the fans were very injured. We were all very hurt. We were expecting just to get run out of the stadium. So for many reasons, I have to go with uh, the Milan 3-1. Sure can't argue with that. That was just so much fun to watch. Something about the viola at the San Siro this year really seems like. For me, I was actually more impressed with the 0-2 win at Napoli. I love it when Fiorentina win at the San Potato. That just never <laughs> won't make me happy. And I thought it was such a complete performance from start to finish from everyone on the pitch. Keeping a clean sheet is great. Got a really nice Vlaovic goal late, which was cool. The midfield was solid. They moved the ball around. They just looked levels above Napoli the whole way. And I, I thought that for me, that was it. But I certainly won't argue yours. Little shout out for the big win against Bologna, last home game of the year. 4-0 is nice, but also, to me, beating up on Napoli in their own stadium in front of their fans, clean sheet, is yeah. more impressive than shelling the Oscar Mayers for nothing when there's nothing left to play for. Well, and the Napoli game had something that none of the other ones had, which is redemption. After that opening game where Jodavar, again, we talk oh, about it, appreciating. That had that had a lot of redemption on the line, so there was definitely a lot of emotion for the players and for the fans. So, absolutely. I'm, I'm with you there. Two, two very good games. And at least we have two to choose from. Really wouldn't have thought it at the start of the season. <laughs> Fortunately, our next category, we do have some to choose from. Mike, what was the worst overall team performance of this season? I'm, I'm going to say that this was the worst overall performance, and, and there could have been more. There, there could have been worse ones, and, and, and I'll say that. But for me, the most emotionally let down that I was during the season was the second game coming after what I thought was a very good performance at home against Napoli, a game that we should have tied, if not won. Those officials, to those officials, going to Genoa and losing 2-1 on a very, very flat performance from this club. And you could see there that, nobody wanted to play and it was so infuriating because I was riding so high into that game I was so pissed off for what happened to us at, at the Franchi against Napoli that I thought for sure we were just going to just beat down Genoa and we didn't we lost 2-1 that was a massive letdown I think for me though just the utter capitulation games take the cake the 5-2 at Cagliari was, I think, the worst I saw the team play all year. 
but I almost might have to hand it to the one three loss to a Sassuolo at home after the restart that they made Fiorentina look like a bunch of children. That was just so humiliating. That one just drove me crazy. And I, oh boy. On the plus side, it did prompt the really good form to finish out the season. So I guess there's that, but I could flip a coin between that Cagliari game and the Sassuolo one and be sad every single time. Uh, next up, something that I'm yeah. not always super comfortable doing. It's hard. Calling out the worst player on the team this year because these guys are professionals. And let's go ahead and preface this by saying a lot of the time, we can't really judge their performances from the outside. We don't know how much of what they're doing is them following the coach's instructions in a way that to a fan just looks wrong and stupid. Again, we might be totally off base with these. If any of the guys we're about to talk about want to get in touch with us, we would love to hear your opinions on why we're morons. That said, Mike, who's your worst player of the year? Let's just say if any of them reach out to us and say we're morons, they're right. We are. <laughs> so so um, I don't want to say worst players. Players that I, I did not want to see on the pitch more than others, I guess, is probably the best way. I have it as two, uh, Badel and, and Gitzall. I think that the midfield was a portion of the team throughout the season just did not perform well. And I think that Prade should have done better than bringing in these two players in the summer market. And it showed throughout the season. So two players that I would have liked to see somebody else playing and getting their minutes, Badel, Somebody else, eventually Duncan took his minutes and, you know, Pulgar, uh, or or Gitzal, Sotil would have preferred to see his minutes. So those are mine too. Yeah, I can't disagree with those. I was, I mean, Rashid Gitzal had two very, very good games after the restart. He scored that really, really fun, sneaky free kick that I enjoyed. He was just not good for most of the year. Oh boy, he yeah, just didn't play well. Badel was frustrating because you could see that his mind he could he still knew where to be, he still knew how to play, but whoo boy, are those legs shot. Just he just couldn't get to his spots, it seemed like a lot of the time. I will also call out two other guys, although I think for the two worst, you're probably dead on. But if I were going to have two follow-ups and Mike, I'm so sorry to say mean things about your large adult son, Dusan Vlaovic. He did have a few fantastic games. He had some performances where he looked like the next great striker in the world, but also he missed so many chances. He missed so many good chances. And I think that he should have scored probably 15 goals, but just whiffed on shots within the six yard box over and over and over again. He's young. I don't think that he's a bad player. I think that he, I think that more than anything, he needed to be playing consistent minutes, maybe at the very top of Serie B, maybe at the bottom of Serie A, but he was a rough watch for a lot of the year. You felt for the guy. You could see the frustration in him. Shame on you. I'm sorry. Shame on you. 
Shame. I'll go, I'll go sit in the corner now. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know what to say here. I, I feel very, uh, I feel very betrayed. Mike and Mike, I think got 18 years. What do we get? Like a couple months before this, this had to happen here. I, I, I've just, I don't even know what to say. You know, listen, I, I think you're right. Vlahovic uh, needs a lot of time on the pitch. He needs a lot of coaching. The biggest thing I think for him is not necessarily the training that he needs to take on the pitch. I think he needs to get some type of sports psychologist to help him because I, I think most of the time you're seeing him just try so hard and he's trying to will the ball into the net. And at some point that becomes counterproductive. I think he needs to trust his skill. I think he needs to trust his training, his positioning, and and just go out there and play for the love of the game and try a little less. But shame on you. I will I will say though, I do admire him so much for the way that he discussed his experience contracting the coronavirus. I thought that was handled with so much maturity and so much mental fortitude that you wouldn't expect from a guy who was a teenager at the time. Yeah. And it shows you that he does have that mental toughness. I mean, he hearing him discuss that was one harrowing and two really impressive, just how calm and composed he was looking back on it. And I found that extremely admirable. He obviously has the, the capacity to be that player who's not overthinking so much. You're right. And I think that maybe next year, now that he's got a full year in Serie A in the top flight, maybe that'll take some of the burden off. The other guy who I was underwhelmed by largely was Paul Lirola. He had a maybe a two-month period after Yakini took over where I thought he was superb. He was really good, fantastic, great on the ball, solid defensively. But under Montella, he was tentative, hesitant, confused. And then after the restart, I think largely because he was forced to play on the left, where he's clearly not as comfortable, he was very confident, but he was also very bad. That's not a great combination. Hopefully next year he can build on those performances he had under Yukini to start with in his more natural right-sided role. But based on the last month or so, Lorenzo Venuti has absolutely drank his milkshake up. So there was an emotional aspect of Vlahovic being on this list. Logically, I think that LaRolla is, is a little bit unjust being in here because I do think that when put in a position of strength, he is a top performing player. Just a couple months ago, I guess it was, you know, we were, we were discussing him and his potential and even Barcelona was being rumored to be looking at him. I, I think we need to take a look at the club and based off of what Iakini's doing, who are the players that are going to be lining up? What's the formation that we're, we're going to be running? We need to either find players for Iakini or we need to find a formation for the players because, in my opinion, when Larola is played the right way, he has the, the pace, he has the visibility of, of the pitch and what's going on, he has certain instincts and capabilities to be a top-level performer. But I will say this. Yes, you're right. Towards the end, it was very disheartening to see the way that he performed. He took a lot from the press. He took a lot from the fans. And I think he knows he needs to do better. He expects better. But he also wasn't set up to succeed. So I don't know if it was necessarily his fault. 
I oh, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think he was in large part, especially at the end, set up for failure and yeah. did exactly what he was set up to do. So I'm not holding it against him. I think next year he's going to be a lot better. And in the spirit of saying something nice about a player, I just said something not nice about. I would like to add that he seems like he's hilarious off the field. All he wants to do is play video games and like stream himself on Twitch and practice his profanities in Italian. And I find that for some reason really appealing. You got to appreciate that. On the LaRolla front though, I will say I I would actually substitute LaRolla for Dalbert here. And I was a big Dalbert fan when we, we had this conversation before I think Dahlberg got moved into this conversation with the inconsistency of his performances. Uh, he, he was almost like a Chiesa um, player, but obviously far less down. Uh, he, he, he had some really good performances, but by and large, the majority of his performances were very subpar. And what I think was actually more detrimental to the club was his inability to control his emotions on the pitch and the fact that he had very dangerous tackles, yellow card after yellow card and some even red cards. He, he did put the club from a tactical standpoint at a disadvantage, despite the fact that he again has technical capabilities. He needs to get in uh, to the game from a mental standpoint to make us successful. If the rumors are true that he's being renewed for, for next year, we need him to be better physically, but more importantly, I think we need to have him better mentally. That is fair. I had him down generally as a solid performer. Again, very uneven. I agree with you on that. I thought that there was more good than bad from him this year, but I'm not going to fight you on this one, especially since you're already coming for me after I said mean things about Dushan. I would like to change the subject now to the biggest villain besides (laughs) me of the year. Who do you think, Mike, earned your ire the most? out of everyone this year. And, hey, this is going to be a nice short list, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, let's just go through the list and we'll see if we're going to add to it. So we have the officiating, the referees, and, and VAR. We have Mayor Nardella, the Agnelli family, Superintendent Piscina, and, well, let's just throw Cyril, uh, Tarot in here. Anybody else? Yeah, the villain's always Cyril Terrio, no matter what. Man, that guy. So excited he's not on the roster anymore. (laughs) No doubt about it. I will actually say that I think the referees this year were terrible. I think the lack of transparency around the use of VAR, we saw it in both Lazio games, uh, against Napoli, against Roma, just time and time again. Referees ignoring the chance to review pretty obvious goal scoring incidents. And that means that Serie A in Italian soccer will remain a punchline indefinitely until these things get fixed. And there doesn't really seem to be a whole lot of interest in fixing them. I know that Pierluigi Colina is emerging from retirement to try and put together some sort of, some sort of guide on how to use VAR which is great because if Pierluigi Colina tells you to do something, you're going to do it because he is terrifying. But that's not enough. There's not enough institutional support for the referees or enough institutional, like, what's the word I'm looking for here? Accountability for the referees. And until that changes, 
nothing changes. I do want to join you in shouting out the Agnelli family. One, because they're just a bunch of jerks. Two, because Andrea Agnelli is the world's biggest failson. And three, trying to push people back into the stadiums this season is, as far as I'm concerned, that was attempted murder. And I I cannot express on this reasonably family-friendly podcast how disgusted I am with him about that effort. Just, I, I'm just going to trail off into nothingness here while I try to choke back my fury. So you should take over here. I actually think that it's great that you chose those three. Well, obviously everybody chooses Cyril. So I guess it's, I think it's good that you chose the other two because I'm going to go with the opposite. It's interesting because I used to go and, and play every year Madden football but I didn't really play much of the game. What I would do is I would just skip through the season and I would just draft and I would sign players and then eventually you can build stadiums. I always liked the sports business side of things. And so I'm going to go with Marinardella and Superintendent Piscina for clear and obvious reasons here. They need to get their act together to allow Fiorentina to take the steps that they need to take in order to become a power to superpower inside of Italy, inside of Europe. Rocco has all the ambition in the world. We've talked about it in this podcast. We've talked about it in multiple other podcasts. In my opinion, Marinardella is a likable guy, but he went from a likable guy to a villain this year. And you're seeing a lot of the protests. You're seeing a lot of the actions being taken by fans against Marinardella and against a lot of the other politicians inside the city of Florence and inside of Tuscany for right and, and um, righteous actions here. So in, in my opinion, Marinardella needs to get back on track and he should have some power to be able to do that. Whether he does, I don't know. Listen, Dario, just come out and tell us. You don't have the ability to get this on track here. Call out who is messing this up so this way we're no longer mad at you. Just tell us. Just be honest. Like, honesty matters here. Then you have another guy. Who the hell even heard of Superintendent Pizzina? Like, let's be honest. This guy has the audacity. We talked about the balls before. This guy has the balls to stop construction while it's being done because of stupid reasons. Buildings being too high, you know, grounds being disrupted. Are you kidding me? It's an old farm that is going to be made into a beautiful complex. Rock already had to take a soccer field or two away. Now you want to start taking more and more and more away? Listen, we get it. You want to have your name out there. You want to do that? There's many other things that you can do to become successful, to become, you know, notorious. Don't do this. Stop it. Stop messing around with this. And if you're going to be doing it, like, come on, fans. Go go take your, your, your aggression somewhere else. Over in the United States, what we do is we toilet paper and egg people houses. Go find out where he lives. Take a whole bunch of toilet paper. Hopefully, you guys don't have, you know, the issues we do here in the United States where there's no toilet paper in, in, in the, the shopping centers. You know, if you do, take some toilet paper. Go to his house. Just hold one, one strand and just start throwing it at his house. Then you go and you get a whole bunch of eggs. Italy, you have a whole bunch of eggs. Eggs are everywhere in that country. Just start throwing them at his house. Start doing this. Get rid of this guy so he can start making 
action for the club. Let Rocco build. Rocco said he's not going to build the stadium if he can't build Central Sportivo. Piscina, get out of the way. So those are my villains. And on that note, while we go into this ad break to discuss a few things with our legal team, I would like to go on the air and say that we are not encouraging vandalism in Italy or anywhere else. But we will be back with a few more things after this. Having consulted with our legal team here, we can come back for the final segment of this podcast. Let's start with the positive things because we're such positive people around here, Mike. What worked this past year that you think can continue next year or should continue next year? Youth has to go to the top. I'd love to see that we can keep Chiesa, we can keep Milankovic, we can keep Drogowski and build around them. So what has worked, the the pieces that were already here and building around them. I'd love to be able to see Prade put extensions in place that builds towards Rocco's ultimate goal and then surround them with pieces that just aren't here yet. Clearly, we would need somebody who can score and finish. We may need a offensive-minded midfielder. I'd like to have another one of those personally. And if we're keeping Petzela, if we're keeping Malinkovic, I would have liked to see a replacement for, for Dalbert, but we're keeping him. So I, I think we're actually in a good spot. Youth has been, been the, the biggest thing that, that has been successful this year, and I think that that's going to be consistent as long as we can keep it. That's a really looking at who he said the best players were for the team. It was young players. Mm-hmm. Frank Ribery might have been in that list if he hadn't been hurt for half of the season, but he was, and at the age of 37, you kind of expect that. I mean, Milenkovic, yeah. Chiesa, Kostrovili, Trogovsky, once they arrived in the, in the January window, I thought that Cutrone and especially Chris Kuwame were excellent as well. There's the makings of a very good side here, they're all about the same age. They can really grow together. I think you're dead on there. And I think a lot of that is creating that team identity so that they all want to stick together. I know I've said that word a whole lot today, but I think it's just such a big piece of it. A lot of that, too, does come down to Beppe Yakini really getting through to these players. I mean, look at the way that Chiesa ran and hugged him after returning from exile on the bench after scoring a goal and hugged him for maybe a little bit too long and maybe a little <laughs> bit too hard in a way that I don't think that he ever would have done with Montella. I think that reaching the players was something that Yakini did really well because it really does matter. Even if you don't want to believe what all the Disney sports movies have told you, That's the one thing that's true. A team that really does stick together is going to play better. And Yakini brought that to the table. I think that begs the question, with that many years difference between Beppe and Fede, is that still a bromance? Maybe sort of a a spring-autumn bromance. Makes sense. I think it's fine, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I mean, we'll leave it out to our audience. They can let us know what they think that that looks like. I'm sure there's fanfic out there somewhere. Uh, you know, I think uh, team identity is is always very important. We've talked about the identity of this club uh, has been very successful on the defensive side. We know the city of Firenze, the, the fans of Fiorentina have always been very offensive minded. So I think that that's going to be one of those things. Defensively, it worked. Moving forward, what does that look like? Well, the fans, and we talked about earlier, 
accept a defensive-minded club as long as they're winning, or are they still going to want to see some of those goals that are being scored, very flashy ones, the way that they have for many, many years? The defensive organization, you're right, has been fantastic, but the way that the team is set up, I think, really does detract from its attacking capabilities. One of the things that really stood out to me was when Fiorentina didn't have the ball this year under Iacchini, the wingbacks would drop all the way back, even with the central defenders, to form a back five. So that if anyone got the ball, if an opponent got the ball on the wing, it wasn't the wingback closing them down. It was a central midfielder coming across, and then the other two would shuffle across behind them, and then one of the strikers would drop in on the other side to form almost a 5-4-1 without the ball. It's really hard to build quick attacks from that formation because there's so many bodies back, especially in the wide positions. I think you have to give the wingbacks a little bit more freedom to get forward to pressure in defense because that way, if and when they win the ball, you have that wide outlet with strikers in the middle in goal-scoring positions. How many times did we see Chiesa or Kutrona or Vlaovic or Kuame battling away up top with no support or run down a ball in the wide areas and there's no one crashing into the box. That is a tactical tweak that I would really like to see. But you also can't argue with the results on the other end. Keeping that many players that deep for long stretches of the game does make Fiorentina really difficult to score against. So finding that balance, I think, is the big thing. The other thing that I'll mention here that I think was what worked this year and what should continue into next year is the support for Rocco. You know, Rocco came in to the ownership of this club. I don't recall seeing any, uh, as there's been turnover at the, the ownership level, show the new owner the the support, the love, the admiration, that the way that the city of Florence, the, the, the way that the fans of Fiorentina showed Rocco Camiso. And he even said on our podcast here, you know, one of the things that has to change is all the requests for selfies because, listen, he's too old for that. You know, that needs to change. And, and we completely get that. I, I do believe, though, that the support for him has to continue. So there is that kind of reaching out to the base and asking them to do so. I would recommend that it changes in one way, shape, or form, and that it's not just support in going to admire him and holding banners. We've heard the stories from Rocco as far as what worked. Without the fans going to the Della Valle storefront in Firenze, Rocco would have had a long, drawn-out process to purchase this club probably would have cost a little bit more there probably would have been a little bit more stipulations potentially some of those players that were tied to contracts and some weird scenarios would have reached different fates Federico Chiesa could have been sold by that point the fans have a clear ability to impact and drive change inside of the city of Firenze so the support that I would actually ask, so what worked, what, what we need to do next year, I think we need to get a little bit more proactive, a, a little bit more vocal, a little bit more public in, in asking Nardella to change. Let's support Rocco in the initiatives of, of what he's trying to do in any way, shape, or form to drive action. And I think that really does circle us back around at the end of this podcast to what is 
most important about this team, which is the fans. And I think the way to close is to highlight how good the fans were all year. The traveling support, maybe it was just the way they positioned the microphones in the stadium. Maybe it was something else. But even when Fiorentina weren't at the Franchi, you could hear Fiorentina's songs through the stadium noise. When they were home, they were just fantastic. And seeing the way these fans stuck with the team, even through the bad times, was so impressive. And so to the fans and to everyone listening, thanks for sticking with it. Thanks for sticking with us through this year, too. It's been kind of a similar growth trajectory for us, I think, or at least I would like to think that we started off pretty bad at it and we're slowly getting it together. Maybe next year we'll be good at it. Who knows? Viola Station is hosted by Mike and Tito. Tito also produced this episode. Our theme music is Great Catch by Windchime Weather. Check them out at windchimeweather.bandcamp.com. Viola Station is the podcast from Viola Nation. Find us at violanation.com. We're a part of the SB Nation Network. Forza Viola. Podcast Network.